Let's listen to the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Amen. Last week we talked about key chain leadership and about how young people were encouraged to be part of a congregation. And Emma is going to to tell us her version of that. Yeah, so uh, I might have made the mistake of saying to David last week that when he was describing a church that um, raised up young people into leadership, um, that was very much my experience as a young person. And I walked in this morning and David was like, do you want to tell us about it? So forgive me if this is a little bit rambling, um, but I've I've written some things down, so hopefully I'll get there. Um, So I grew up in a Church of England church um, through the 90s. Um, My parents moved to that church in the late 1980s um, because suffice to say, it wasn't a family-friendly church. I think they'd rather children were neither seen nor heard in that church at the time. Um, although, of course, I've no idea what they're like now. Um, and they moved into a church that was in the middle of a baby boom, a bit like us. Um, there were about five or six girls the same age as me, year above, year below, and we all had siblings who were younger. And there was a group of um, young people who were a few years older as well, in the way that families come in stages. Um, And I have early memories of being very much, children were at the heart of the service, so we started like here every week in the church, and we had regular family services where we were part of it. It wasn't just a kid's bit and an adult bit, but everybody had the same sermon. Um, I don't remember this because I was only three, but when my brother was baptised, my doll was baptised too, which I think is a really good sign of welcoming children into the church. Um, by the time I was at the top of primary school, we had a children's band 
so I was very badly playing the violin. Um, and by that point, I fully remember my parents and my, ch- my friends' parents were all involved in serving in the church in different ways. Some of them led the kids' groups. Um, some of them, like my mum and dad, were actually up at the front giving talks, redo- doing readings. Uh, my mum likes acting, so there was quite a bit of very embarrassing uh, liturgical drama going on at the front of the church. Um, but our whole family was involved. Everybody was there. And as we got older, we were invited to serve too. Um, so by the time I was in my teens, I was on the stewarding team. Some of my friends um, helped out with other things, teas and coffees, things like that. Um, and I think for me, as we went into our teens and into, into early high school, we were really embraced in leadership. So um, we were allowed to run entire Sunday morning services. And I don't mean like we'd come up and do bits, but there was an adult kind of like saying, and now this person's going to be reading. We, we were there, we were running the service. I think there were adults just sort of going, don't forget, it's your turn. But, you know, as we went on, we didn't even need that by the time we were 14 or 15. Um, and then when we were about in our mid-teens, the cell church movement became a really big thing. It was the fashion, and everybody was having cell groups. And they trained up two of my friends as a cell group leaders. And we had a cell group. But this cell group, it wasn't run by adults. We didn't rock up to our youth group leader's house. We went to each other's houses, and the only rule was there had to be an adult in the house at the time in case of emergencies. But we planned our own sessions. We led them with each other. And nobody told us what to do. So we sat there, and we'd just pray and listen to God, and we'd speak words of prophecy over one another. And it was such an encouraging time. Because we were in a place where we were actively hearing from God. And like that, I think, is the actual centre of why so many of us have retained a faith and retained an active church connection. Um, and alongside that, I was thinking about how the Growing Young talks about the involvement in the world around us as well. Um, you may have heard of an organisation called Soul Survivor. They ran um, summer weeks for many, many years. They just finished a few years ago doing that. And through the early 2000s, they had a project called The Noise, which over the English May Bank holiday weekend, um, we would go out and do community service projects. And that wasn't something the adults in the church set up for us. We said, we want to do it. And so they said, what do you want to do? So the first one we did, we went and we repainted this corrugated metal bus stop around the corner from the church that was peeling and terrible. And the adults helped us. They got permission from the council and all of that. But we did that. We went and lit a pitch through our neighbourhood. And it was our project that we were supported in. Um, We reached a point where we were not having Sunday groups every week. It was a couple of times a month. And then we'd be in the service. We'd be contributing through readings, through prayers, through serving. Um, And in terms of being involved in the wider leadership, our church had a really good practice of having meetings periodically when we were making big decisions like um, rotating the sanctuary through 90 degrees uh, it's a big it's a big concrete 1960s box so you could do that in a way you can't hear honestly I've never seen people so divided over an issue in church <laughs> um, but we were there and we were asked you know what do you think we were listened to and by the time we were 18 and now looking back on this I think this was just because nobody wants to be on PCC but by the time we were 18, one of us had been elected onto PCC 
um, and was involved in that proper decision-making thing. Uh, for those of you who don't know, PCC is kind of like the Kirk session, but you vote everybody on once a year, I think. And there's still, even when I go back now, every, the people who've been there long enough, some people are new and don't know me, but they know my name and they come and they ask after me. The people who, honestly, they, I thought they were old then and they probably weren't at all. <laughs> um, I feel like they've been old as long as I've known them, but they still they know my name, they ask after me. And I've always felt like I've been known by the people in that church, that when I reached 18 and I decided that I felt called to go and do a year's mission work in Edinburgh, um, <laughs> you know, I was there for a bit longer than a year. <laughs> but they, they supported me in my mission, some of them through prayer, some of them financially, and many of them wanted to hear all about what I'd been doing. And the same was true for my other friends who went off, some of them did youth work, some of them went straight into vocational degrees. Um, we were all supported, we are all loved when we go back. And I would say, I think about 90% of us have retained some active faith, and a good proportion of us still have an active church connection. But I, I firmly believe that that church, that St. Luke's, St. Albans, and I want to give their name because I think they deserve to be recognised for the work that they've done over the years. Um, and I'm always, always so grateful to the fact that they embraced us. They put us at the centre of the church and gave us opportunities um, to, to serve, to lead and to be listened to. Thank you, Thank you very much. Yeah. So over these uh, weeks, we've been thinking about uh, what causes some congregations to grow young. And it's based uh, on research that is in this book, Growing Young. It's uh, actually titled Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. And Cara Powell, Jake Mulder, and Brad Griffin uh, have written that. And they've been involved with us, the small group from the congregation, uh, during this year as we've been thinking about these things. Um, we've not been doing that on our own. There's another 20-odd uh, congregations in the Church of Scotland uh, doing that uh, as well. And we're just going into a second year of that. And really, the second year is because of COVID. Normally, it would be a one-year process, and that gives you the opportunity to, to uh, identify areas to work on and to move uh, forward with. But because of COVID, we've not been able to do that. So uh, we are now uh, getting a second year with them, uh, which hopefully will be uh, really beneficial. And the growing young thing is that many congregations are getting older, greyer, and fewer in number, uh, but these ones were doing the opposite. Their average age was coming down, and so they did research as to why uh, that was. And so there are six core commitments um, there uh, that they, they had. There were other things, but these six were, were in all of them. So it's unlock keychain leadership, empathize with today's young people, take Jesus' message seriously, fuel a warm community, prioritize young people and families everywhere, and be uh, the best neighbors. And it's not a, a kind of process that you start at number one and work through to number six. Um, you, you know, you, you do whatever fits your context, uh, because we're, we're good at some things and, and maybe not so, so strong in, in others. So you work on the things that you're not so strong in, um, and it's kind of a little bit of a jumble sometimes, so it's not this one thing and we work through. And that obviously makes it a little bit more complicated, um, but 
our priorities are going to be different to the priorities of these other congregations in the church that are working through this process. So we're doing different things. I want to encourage as many people as possible to read the book. I'm just going to hold it up again so you know which one. If you go online, it's got a green cover um, and it's um, Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies uh, and Growing Young. Because if we um, don't actually, as a congregation, read and think and pray through some of these issues, we're wasting our time. And the, the, the few of us who have, who have done a year already, what, what's it been for? But, but even more than that, this, this is something that has been researched. They've actually gone, and, and it was published in 2015, so they've had all of these years to back up that research, working in congregations to see that it does actually work. And if we are concerned about the future of our congregation and our own young people, then we need to do something. Um, about that. And this is something that we hope and pray will help. And the research, I want to stress again, the research, although we are focusing on young people, it says that when we do that, everybody benefits. It's not just the young people who benefit. All of us will benefit if we do these things. So I'm going to do uh, a Wednesday afternoon and a Thursday evening uh, study um, starting from the beginning of October, I think Wednesday the 6th uh, of, of October, the Wednesday afternoon. Uh, that's going to be slightly longer because we watch a video first. So that's about half an hour uh, and then have uh, time to discuss. And on the Thursday evening, you'll need to have read the chapter of the book in advance. Okay? Um, and then we'll discuss it like, just like a book group. So far, there's one other group that's being organized, but I, I do hope that uh, more folk will get involved with this, uh, either through an existing group where you might do it together uh, or to start a new group just for the, the eight weeks of it uh, or just get together with a, with a couple of friends, read it and talk about it and, and work out, you know, what does this have to say to us in our context, in our congregation? Today, we're thinking about how to be the best neighbors. And the chapter starts with the story of Alexis, who has just moved to Washington, D.C. because she wants to change the world. And where better? Because the place is full of non-government organizations, it's full of politicians, the media, and all of that. Where better to go to change the world than Washington? Well, <laughs> that's arguable maybe, but she wants to change the world. She was out in the park one day uh, soon after she arrived, and she came across a festival. She was drawn by the music, uh, and she had a great time wandering around. And she came to a stall that was entitled Foster the City. And she asked them uh, what, what they were about. And these were people who were determined to find more foster parents than there were children waiting to be fostered in Washington, D.C. And as they talked, it became apparent that they belonged to a church. And a church wasn't really something that had been high on her priority list as she had uh, moved. And, and they said this was one of the things that they did, but they had other uh, social action initiatives in the church. And so she joined them, and she now leads worship there. But what she says about that is this. Everyone in our city wants to change the world. But this church makes that tangible in a manner I've never seen before in a church. It teaches you how to apply your faith to the culture so you can interact with the world as God intends. Sometimes 
in the West. We find there's an imbalance in, in congregations. You know, some seem at least to be more focused on, on the Word and on sound doctrine, and others seem to be more focused on social action. And so we, we kind of like to label people and things. And so some are maybe labeled, uh, labeled conservative and evangelical, and others are labeled liberal. But, but actually, the truth is, no congregation is one thing. It just somehow we, we like to make it easy for ourselves in trying to understand other people. But next week, we're going to be looking at, at the, the, the one that says we've got to take Jesus' message seriously because we need both. We need both word and action. In fact, I would suggest if we are not actively seeking the transformation of individuals and society, then we are not taking Jesus' message seriously. Another quote says, churches that grow young recognize the careful dance that values both fidelity to Scripture's commands for holiness and knowing and graciously loving their neighbors. This dance affects how they serve, pursue social justice, help teenagers and emerging adults find their calling, interact with popular culture, and respond to heated cultural issues. Much more than developing detailed policies or releasing theological position papers, these churches train and infuse their younger people with an integrated discipleship that enables them to thrive in our complex world. Wouldn't it be good if not just our young people, but we were able to encourage everyone to thrive? And a, wee, a wee lady in Prestwick and, uh, had, had said something about thriving one day and how, you know, Sometimes when you're at the door, in those days when you used to go to the door and shake hands as people were leaving, you know, and say, how are you? And they go, I'm fine. And everybody, everybody was always fine. And I said, why, why does nobody ever go, I'm thriving? Hey? And this wee woman who was, well, she was older. Um, every day, every Sunday she would come out and say, I'm thriving. Wouldn't it be good if we could encourage every age to thrive? to see real hope, real potential, real joy, real energy, real passion from people because they're thriving in their faith and in their walk with God. Of course, that's much easier said than done. We heard the question in the reading today, and the book says the best neighbors ask the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus was asked to identify the greatest commandment, and he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then he added something that they weren't expecting. And love your neighbor as yourself. The obvious question then is the one he was asked, so who is my neighbor? And he told the story that we heard today. The Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho is attacked and beaten and robbed and left by the side of the road to die. And the two religious people come along and they look at him and they walk on by. And you know, if you've gone through the, the purification uh, rites that you needed to do in order to go to the temple, you don't want to touch something or someone that's dirty because you'd have to go and do them again. And so you can understand maybe there's a kind of justification that we all sometimes make to ourselves about why we don't do certain things. But the fact is, they could have helped and they didn't. And then Jesus chooses the unexpected person as the one who helped. 
Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And yet, in this story, it's the outcast, it's the stranger, it's the one who is hated who comes along and who shows mercy and compassion. When Jesus asks who was the neighbor, it's abundantly clear it was the one who acted. It was the one who showed mercy and compassion. The others may have felt sad or upset. They might even have prayed for him. They might have felt guilty about not doing anything, but the fact is they didn't actually do anything. They left him to die. Churches that strive to be the best neighbors reflect this selfless mercy toward people outside their congregation. Whether those neighbors are friends or strangers, or even enemies. Another quote from the book, our church has more than just a desire to do good. We understand that this good, this need for justice comes from our understanding of the gospel. It's grounded in who Jesus is, who God is, and what life is all about, not just an add-on. So the best neighbors ask, who is my neighbor? But then we also see that hospitable neighbors honor what's good. Young people are tired of congregations that define themselves by what they're against rather than what they're for. We need to identify what's good in our culture and in those who are outside our Christian community. Now, that doesn't imply wholehearted acceptance or that we should pretend that there are not real differences between us and the world uh, and the culture outside. Where there are differences, though, we need to act with compassion, with grace, with mercy, with patience, and with honesty. We need to maintain dialogue and relationship. And then we find that compassionate neighbors make their world a better place. Churches that are growing young focus on doing good, both in their own neighborhood and around the world. When they were asked what made their church effective with younger people, 60% said some sort of service or missional practice or being focused on people out with the congregation. That's what it was that helped them. Over these last weeks, some of our congregation have been working on, on making canaries. And you might say, well, what a daft thing. Do you know, what on earth are we going to achieve by that? And the truth is, we have no idea what might be achieved by that. But it's something positive that we can do. It's something good that we can do to encourage our politicians to think and to understand that there are people in their communities who are concerned about the environment and they want them to act. It's a simple concept. And we can all get involved in things like that to make the world a better place. Wise neighbors help young people to discover their calling. We've mentioned that today's 25-year-old can sometimes seem like a 15-year-old, and vice versa. Like a, a GPS app, people are offered multiple options to a destination, and that's assuming you know where the destination is. But we were speaking to a young man just yesterday who said when he left school, he had no idea what he wanted to do. He had no idea where he wanted to go. He didn't know what there was there for him. 
and he's not alone. I keep saying, I've not decided what I want to be when I grow up. Life can give our teenagers and young adults an overwhelming array of options. But only God's people can help them to discover what God has for them. Churches that are growing young provide this vocational guidance by helping teenagers and emerging adults locate themselves and their work in light of a grand narrative. Now, that, that's very unusual because nowadays we don't believe there is a grand narrative. There's no, there's no big overarching story. There's no right and wrong. There's no truth. Uh, or, or, you know, we don't have those big pictures. And yet God says there is a big picture. And, and we looked last year at the big picture, the story from Genesis all the way through to Jesus. There is a big picture. And only God's people can say to, this is what it is. And that gives these young people greater meaning than simply finding a job to pay the bills. The best neighbors avoid common pitfalls, and there are four of those. When we're trying to engage with uh, the, the culture around us, one is, is about aiming for perfection. During the research, one of the lowest ratings that they found was for teaching people how to interact and engage with culture and social issues. That, that was something that, that these congregations, even the ones that were growing younger, they weren't very good at. Even in the best congregations, there's room for improvement. We can never be perfect. That's the truth. If we did this survey and we were getting fives for everything and that was the best result, somebody's lying. Because there's always room for improvement. We can always get better. And what they found was that one of the best ratings was when these same people were asked how true it was that their congregation emphasized social justice or serving others who were in need. So they understood that things weren't right. They understood that things could get better, but they were so pleased that they were doing something. Even if it wasn't perfect. The second thing is about copying and competing. Younger people value authenticity and they quite quickly sniff out a fake. So it's not up to us to try and copy the culture around us and we certainly shouldn't try to entertain because there are better forms of entertainment out there. We have to learn who we are and what our thing is. There's only, in Edinburgh, there's only one P's and G's, there's only one central, there's only one whatever else you, you want to choose. But, but the truth is, we have to find what our thing is. It's not up to us to, to copy the style of another congregation because they seem to be doing well, but nor are we to compete with them. It's not just about numbers, although numbers are important. We need to find out what makes us us and then go about doing it. The third thing is about condemning and critiquing. We, we, we focus on what we're for, not what we're against. The idea that we should love the sinner but hate the sin has more than done its job, at least in relation to the second part of that statement. Of course, there are times when we must take a stand, but the congregations that are growing young do that quite sparingly. We want to change the culture of the prevailing culture in our communities. And one way of doing that is to show that our Christian values have a positive effect for the whole community, not just us. 
And the last thing is finding the one right issue. And the research showed that there was no one issue. For some congregations in America, the, the issue that they had to deal with was race. And others, it was poverty. And so, so they were all different. There's no one issue that we can just say, this is what we, if we focus on this, everything will be fine. The truth is it doesn't matter if the focus is local or national or international as long as it is meaningful to the people who are um, involved. Of course, we need to avoid adding endless new causes. If we said to you, come next week with your cause and we'll support you, we couldn't support 150 new causes. We can't do that. But, but we can encourage and, and help you in those things that you are interested in. We can't fix the whole world. In fact, we can't fix very much. But we believe in a God who created and sustains the universe. He loves people and he wants to be in relationship with them. He is the great physician and the master builder and he can fix things, people and circumstances. His offer in life is that it would be as good as it can possibly be. And not just for some time in the future, but for today and tomorrow. The gospel is good news, and we need to proclaim it in a whole variety of different ways. So practically, what can we do? First of all, recognize that younger people are action-oriented, and they want to be part of something that helps the wider world. Second, provide some time and uh, people to walk alongside them as they explore questions and answers to the deeper issues of life. Third, ask questions of them. Get their views and opinions. Find out where they are and what interests them, what challenges them, and understand their issues, their passions. And last, do it. Spend a period of time actually serving our neighbors well, meeting some of the needs that they have, putting our faith into action. Throughout the history of God's people, there have been moments when we've had to act, when we've had to do something, and our last song it speaks about that two uh, heroes from the Old Testament, Elijah and David, who in their time, in their day, were called to speak into the world in which they lived. And this says, in our day, in our time, like them, we are called to speak into that world. These are the days of Elijah.